We continue our study in 1 Corinthians, turning our attention now to chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. If you'll turn there in your copy of the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. We'll read the text in a moment, but before I do, I have a question concerning Thanksgiving and the holidays. Uh, We've all come off of our celebratory meals, and hopefully we've had a a, a good meal. Uh, But let me ask you in the beginning of our lesson today, uh, who here broke out the fine china? Did anybody do a very nice spread with nice plates and bowls? We've got one. Who, who broke out the paper plates? We got one on the paper plates, two on the paper plates. So we got some, some on the far side. Most of us probably just use normal dinner plateware. Uh, but fine china, right? Uh, Y'all are probably confused why I'm asking. I'll get back to it. It's all right. Fine china. There. What's that? Whatever Bojangles is serving up now. <laughs> I've not had a Bojangles Thanksgiving yet, but uh, give me time. I've been in the South just a little while. so. But uh, let's, uh, let's recap the context before we read the scripture. Uh, last uh, week we were with Bill, and he was going out of the Heidelberg Catechism, but before that we were in 1 Corinthians, and we read the previous section, and we, we considered uh, Paul's judgment. He had uh, issued a judgment uh, to uh, effectively excommunicate this man for uh, sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he uh, exhorted the church in Corinth to execute that judgment uh, by casting him out of the church. Uh, and then he has had this excursus on uh, on judgment itself, uh, namely the fact that we are uh, able to judge and we should judge. Uh, and we'll remember uh, from that lesson uh, that it's not uh, an issue of incompetence, it's not an issue of ignorance, but it's an issue of what did Aaron Angel say? Anybody remember? What is the, the, the prime problem when it comes to judging? Identity, right? We, we need to understand who we are in Christ if we are to uh, judge ourselves and others uh, righteously. And so it's, a, it's not an issue. We're not incompetent to judge. We're not ignorant to judge. But we really need to realize our identity. That uh, identity it brings us to uh, verses 9 through 11 at least, which I intended to get to last week, but we will now get to uh, this week. So let's read uh, the whole of today's section, 9 through 20, and then we'll focus first on verses 9 through 11, where we see the issue of identity come into play. Chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, in this way, the Apostle Paul returns uh, to the issue of uh, human sexuality, uh, and he's still dealing with Uh, the general issue of judgment, he asks, do you not know? In a series of questions he's been asking, he's making an argument uh, for why we ought to be able to make judgment, uh, righteous judgment uh, against uh, those in the church. He asks, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit uh, the kingdom of God? And the answer to this rhetorical question, again, as it has been in the past, is yes, you do know, or at least you should know that the unrighteous will not inherit Uh, the kingdom of God. Now, when he says kingdom of God here, he's speaking primarily of the kingdom of glory, which is to come. Uh, There is a kingdom that will be inherited, uh, but who will inherit it? God's people, not the unrighteous, but the righteous. It is those who have been adopted as sons of God. It's sons who inherit Sons who have been adopted will inherit this kingdom of God, this kingdom of glory. And so Paul would have us not to be deceived. And the implication of the the grammar here is that the the Corinthians, at least some of them, appear to already be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And he goes on and he lists this list of sins. And he says, such as these, some of you were, etc., etc., but the, the main point here is these are not the, those who are characterized by these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to look at this list briefly. We don't have time to dig in all the detail, uh, but just to, uh, to consider who are uh, these people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says first the sexually immoral. The word there is pornos, and so you can kind of figure out this is a, a broad category. It refers to many types of people involved in many types of sexual sins. And then he goes on idolaters, that is, those who worship idols, adulterers, that's one we still have a a word that we use regularly, those who are in a covenant of marriage but then choose to violate that covenant of marriage by sleeping with somebody who is not their spouse, nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, The important comment here uh, is is that this is actually the word practice is nowhere in the Greek. Uh, This practices homosexuality is an interpretation and frankly a somewhat bad one because the word itself is the effeminate and the homosexual that is the the effeminate and the the man betters and so the idea here is not so much people who practice homosexuality but people who are characterized by homosexuality that becomes important in current denominational affairs but it's worth noting that the whole issue here is not strictly the act but those whose identities are primarily defined uh, and described by these sins one who worships idols uh, as a habit, one who uh, practices homosexuality perhaps, but 
those who are effeminate by habit, uh, those who are man-betters by habit, those who are thieves by habit. It's not speaking so much of the action as uh, the, the habitual character of the person. This is important because when we ask the question, who will not inherit the kingdom of God, is it the case that only those who never do these things will inherit the kingdom of God? If you do one of these things a single time, are you out of the inheritance? Not if you've been saved. No, not if you've been saved. It's not speaking of those who who sin in these various ways. Uh, You know, maybe they, they, they sin like this once or twice, occasionally they fall back into sin. But it's, it's speaking of people who are habitually characterized uh, by these sin patterns. And it's not speaking of the repentant. It's not speaking of those who are endeavoring to follow after Christ but sometimes fail. But it's speaking of those who willfully and obstinately refuse to repent and choose to remain in the lifestyle of sin. And so that's true for all of these that are listed here. Uh, we might... Consider some of the differences. What's the difference between a, a thief and a, uh, a swindler? One probably involves violence, while the other involves more deception. Uh, there are uh, important nuances here, but the main point is that this is a, this is a generic list of vices uh, that Paul is highlighting as the sorts of people that the Corinthians once were. I'll draw your attention to verse 11. And such were some of you. And the implication is then that they are no longer these things. And that's what he says. Notice the, con- the contrast. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the Corinthians, at least some of them, were walking in the habits of these sins. They would be primarily characterized as being idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, etc. Such were they. But then now they have been, at some point in their life, washed. And this is why Paul uh, raises this issue. He wants them to reflect on the fact that they no longer are these things. I wonder if we, we do that in our own Christian experience, our own Christian life, uh, we do note that he says, some of you, not all of you, not everybody who has uh, faith and is walking with Christ uh, has a, you know, what we call the dramatic conversion story, where I was a, a drunkard, I was an adulterer, I was a drug addict, whatever it may be, and then Christ saved me. A lot of uh, Christians have normal stories of being covenant children, uh, raised in the, the means of grace, and they believed in Jesus, uh, and they, they don't have this story. But for the Corinthians, who are largely a Gentile people group uh, in a godless culture, many of them uh, had these uh, sorts of lifestyles before. It does us well, though, I think, as we read something like this, to, to, to remind ourselves, such were some of us. Never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ himself has dragged us out of the sewer and raised us uh, in Christ. Uh, we have new identities, don't we? we? We are no longer these things. And we should not self-describe as those who are adulterers, or fornicators, or idolaters, drunkards. Uh, We should not describe ourselves in these forms, these fashions, as has become somewhat popular uh, today. Now, looking on to the next section, that is the identity, who we are. Who we are. We we are no longer these things. We have been 
uh, washed, that is the, the, the pollution and the guilt and the, the, the sin that uh, so characterized us has been washed away. Uh, we've been sanctifi- sanctified. That's speaking of definitive sanctification. It's speaking of uh, the, the hard break with the reigning power of sin and uh, making us righteous in Christ such that we are uh, brought into the family of God. It is, it's, it's not the progressive sanctification we tend to think of. It's a definitive sanctification that happened in the beginning of our conversion. Uh, and, and really, I don't think Paul's trying to say terribly different things with each of these washed, sanctified, justified. They're all kind of taken together. His point is there's been a a major transition, a transferring out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, a raising from the sewer and being brought into the kingdom of God. Uh, and God has done that himself. It's passive. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. The actor there, the implied agent, is God himself. We haven't done it ourselves. It's not us who have washed ourselves. We haven't sanctified ourselves. We haven't justified ourselves. We could not do it. But God has done it, and he's done it in Christ, that is, by the merit, the merit of Christ, and effectively by the power of the Holy Spirit. So going now to verse 12, we read uh, this section 12 through 14 uh, is really a, a about Christian liberty. It's, it's describing uh, a, a wrong use of Christian liberty, and Paul's trying to correct uh, what we would call licentiousness. And so uh, I'll read the text. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, the hard question to answer in this section of our text is, we see the quote marks. What What are these quotations of? There are two views uh, concerning uh, who Paul is interacting with in his argument. It's possible uh, that he's quoting himself, that these are things he's perhaps previously taught and uh, uh, communicated to them, and they've taken it maybe in a wrong way, and so now he's issuing something of a corrective statement. It's also possible that this is sort of a popular wisdom coming out of Corinth itself. And the reality is the, the account is not definitive, of, definitive enough for us to say, say, to say one way or another who Paul is quoting. Uh, but what he does do is affirm the general truth of a statement and then narrow in on that statement to give some, some correction, some, some boundaries uh, to prevent misinterpretation. So he starts off, all things are lawful for me. Now, Paul is not talking here about all things in an unqualified sense, literally, I can do whatever I want. Uh, that, that, that is not a true statement at all. Uh, more than likely, what's being spoken of here is what we'd call matters of indifference, a diaphora. It's, it's things that are neither commanded nor forbidden, uh, but are a matter of Christian liberty. That's why I say this is a passage on Christian liberty. Some examples of this might be uh, what you eat. In the Corinthian church, there were questions about whether you could eat meat sacrificed to idols. It was a question of liberty. In our own context, in you know, a, a post-fundamentalist America, we might ask the question of what about the appropriateness of, uh, of alcohol or tobacco, uh, matters of Christian liberty. Uh, there are many other examples we could have, but his point here, all things are lawful for me. That is, all things that are not categorically forbidden as sin are lawful, and yet our response then should not be to say, I can do whatever I want. Uh, What does he say? He responds, but not all things are helpful. So we have a principle here. Has God forbidden it? Well, then I don't do it. 
Has God commanded it? Then I should do it. But if God has neither forbidden it or commanded it, with regard to Christian liberty then, we have a choice to make. How do we make that choice as to whether we participate or not participate, whether we use or don't use? Well, one principle he gives us is to ask whether they are helpful. It's a, it's a point of Christian prudence. Now, I draw our mind to other texts that speak on this. Paul's going to return to this in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verses 23 and 24. He'll return to the issue of Christian liberty. Uh, but we need to ask ourselves, as we're engaging in the various things we engage with, what sort of music we listen to, what sort of movies we watch, what sort of books we read, uh, what we do with our time is a big category for Christian liberty. And we need to be thinking not just, is it lawful or unlawful, but is it helpful, not just for me, but for the broader church? Is this going to cause harm to my, my wife, my children, my husband, uh, my friends and fellow co-laborers in Christ? Uh, is it lawful? And if it is lawful, is it helpful? He says, all things are lawful for me, repeating himself, but I will not be dominated by anything. Another principle. I'm allowed to do it. God hasn't forbidden it. But am I being dominated by this thing that I'm doing? I think especially in our culture, how we prize Christian liberty, especially in the Reformed Church, as it concerns things like alcohol. And yet so many people are, in fact, dominated by that liberty. The whole point of Christian liberty is that we've been set free from the things that once enslaved us whether it was idolatry or greediness or drunkardness or sexual immorality, we've been set free from those things. And our identity then is somebody who is a, a, a free person from sin. We, we are no longer the reign and bondage of sin. And so we should not put ourselves willingly back into that category. And so if you've been delivered from drunkardness, why on earth would you return to being somebody who is being enslaved, dominated, by alcohol again. If you've been set free from sexual immorality, why would you then go and return to sexual immorality and let yourself be ruled by these things? We are not to be dominated by anything, even good things. Now, maybe in the South, it's not so much alcohol. Maybe the, uh, maybe the teetotalers accomplished their mission in that. I don't know. Uh, what we probably are more likely to be dominated in is not just drink, but food, Right? I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't have some macaroni and cheese and some fried chicken. I love Southern food. Uh, <laughs> but we are not to be dominated by the things that we drink or eat uh, or anything. We're not to be dominated by our, uh, thing, the things we enjoy, even if they are lawful. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. He's giving a reason, right? Why are we not to be dominated by these things? There's an appropriateness. God made the stomach, and he made food, and therefore one another, right? God gave us a stomach, and he gave us food because he knew that food would be necessary to feed our stomach. So both are necessary. Both are good. But Paul would remind us, it's, sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a point about eschatology, really, and God will destroy both one and the other. It's interesting. The, the, the reality Paul is pointing out is that food is necessary because we hunger on this earth, because we have bodies that require it. But it seems to be the case that in heaven, in our glorified bodies, we will no longer hunger. Now, whether they will, there will or will not be food in the new heavens and the new earth, I think, is maybe a little bit more speculative than Paul's getting at. 
but the main point is we're not going to hunger. If, if there's food, and you know, there's a lot of imagery about food in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be banquets and feasts, and there's that sort of celebratory imagery. Maybe it's just theological nature. Maybe there is no actual food in heaven. I don't know. Uh, but Paul's point here is that one is created for the other, and so we ought not to be ruled by these things. Uh, they, they are temporary. They're not meant to be forever. Uh, we are not going to need them uh, to satisfy our hunger in the future. But there's a difference here. So he's talking about food and the stomach. God's made food. He's made the stomach. They're for one another. They're necessary and good. Uh, we're not to be dominated by them, but they're okay. But then he makes sort of a, a converse statement, right? He says, body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The stomach's meant for food. The body's not meant for sexual immorality. The purpose of our body is not for sexual morality. That's Paul's point. And so why would we pursue being uh, in these sexually immoral relations, in these sexually immoral actions, if that's not the purpose of our body? So it's, Christ- it's getting at the point of Christian liberty. Why has God given us bodies? Part of the problem in the Corinthian church is that there is this, this implicit assumption that matter is good, or sorry, matter is bad, and that spirit is good. And so we're a spiritual people, and so then it therefore does not matter what I do with my body. We ever think like that? Perhaps not so much in our own culture, but that's at least what was going on in the Corinthian mind, this idea that, well, I'm a spiritual person, you know, we're going to, you know, be uh, in heaven spiritually, uh, but, you know, the body doesn't really matter. So I can, I can do what I, whatever I want in the body. And Paul is refuting that argument by pointing out that the body does matter. God has made the body. Even before the fall, we had bodies. The, the, the matter, physical matter, is not a product of the fall. But God has made us bodies and made them good. And he says, the body is not for, meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise also us by his power. So what's the argument? What does he point to to say that the body matters? He's pointing to something very specific as to why the body matters, why it's not just a matter of indifference to engage in sexual morality, maybe with cult prostitutes or whoever it may be. He's saying the body matters, what you do with your body matters, and it matters because the body's going to be raised from the dead. He's pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying... And God raised the Lord, that is Jesus, and will also raise us by his power. And so if we want to know, does the body matter? Well, evidently it does, because Jesus did not raise as a spirit. He rose bodily. And we will raise bodily too. And so what we do in our body matters. That's at least one reason why it matters, what we do in our body, is because it will be raised by the same power that raised Jesus Christ. Now, Concerning Christian liberty, I do want to read just two paragraphs from our Confession of Faith, because I think they're very helpful when we consider Christian liberty, how we are to live uh, as Christians uh, in those things that are neither commanded or forbidden. Because the tendency is to say, I'm a Christian, therefore I've been set free, and so I can therefore do whatever I want. It's a liberty so often to sin, And we may think that's not the case, but think to when you sin. And you think to when you sin, and you say, well, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways, 
because I know Jesus will forgive me. Has anybody ever had that logic run through their head? I I suspect most of us at one point or another have. But the problem is that's a, a bad view of Christian liberty. It's not a liberty to be set free from sin so that we can sin when we want. No, it's a liberty to be set from sin, set free from sin altogether. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, verse, paragraph 1 says, The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, dominion of sin, from the evils of affliction, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, the everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him. And so what is Christian liberty for? It's not so that I can be mastered by my sin and by my indulgence. It's not that I can be under the dominion of my eating habits or my sexual appetites or whatever it may be, but that having been set free from those things, I can serve the living and true God. Uh, It consists of things like the freedom from guilt of sin, uh, the condemning wrath of God, as I said before, Uh, but it terminates. What is its very end? In yielding obedience unto him. Christian liberty is about obeying God. It's not about getting to, to do whatever I want to do. It's, being, it's about being able now, having been born from above, being regenerated by the power of the Holy Ghost, to be able to willingly serve the Lord who has created and redeemed us. Do we think of Christian liberty like that? Or do we think of it in terms of license? It's not Christian license. It's Christian liberty. We've been set free. And the purpose of our freedom is that we might serve and obey God. And the third paragraph of that same section, if you've not read the Westminster Confession of Faith on the whole, or especially this chapter on Christian liberty, really you should. Uh, It's very excellent. But it deals with this issue of the wrong view of Christian liberty explicitly. He says, They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This issue of licentiousness in the Christian life is not a new one. It's one that goes back to the very early church in Corinth. It was clearly an issue during the days of the Westminster Divines drafting this statement, and it's clearly an issue today. We always have a tendency, an inclination to abuse the good things that God has given us. And we are allowed to use them, but we are not to, to abuse them. We need to be mindful of whether the things we do that are lawful, perhaps, whether they are beneficial, and whether we're doing them in such excess that we are being dominated by them. Well, that is one reason why the body matters, because it will be raised from the dead. That is a description of Christian liberty. But another reason that we're given as far as why the body matters is not just the future resurrection, but also the the present spiritual union we have with Christ. And so when when you're tempted with uh, sin, you don't just say, well, I shouldn't sin because at some point in the future, my body's going to be raised with Christ. But you can say, even presently, I am spiritually united to Christ. And that's where Paul goes. He says, do you not know? It's his favorite rhetorical question. Do you not know? That is, you should know. You do know that your bodies are members of Christ. And he gives us a very vivid illustration. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. No, you should not. 
And Paul uses even stronger language. He says, never. That's the, the famous, you've probably heard uh, um, Pastor Philip say, you know, that's the, the mega noito. You've probably heard at least some other pastor say that. That's the, the, the super emphatic, by no means, absolutely not. Christians are not to do this. We are not to make ourselves members of a prostitute because we are united to Christ. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. What is that a reference to? Properly, it's, it's a reference to marriage. But Paul is applying it in a somewhat improper way. Not that he's wrong to do it, but he's, he's, he's applying it outside the, the context of what it's intended to do because there's a similarity between what happens when somebody joins themselves with a prostitute, what happens when they engage in sexual immorality of any sort, and what happens in marriage. Because one is a corruption of the other. We know that God has given us sexual appetites and desires and that those are rightly met and satisfied in the marital relationship with a spouse. But there is a corrupt version of that that exists throughout all of human history, namely through fornication and adultery, whether with cult prostitutes in Greek culture or nowadays just in terms of our lascivious culture that you know, freely engages in sexual activity without any sort of you know, concern for, uh, for judgment. They, they, uh, they do so openly. And Paul's point is that there's still a similarity between these two things. Even though it's not marriage, there's something that happens in the engaging in uh, sexual relations with, uh, with somebody that is similar to marriage. With a spouse, you, you, a husband and a wife and one flesh, uh, that's what they become when they, they, they come together. And in a similar way, in a corrupt version of that, when you sleep with prostitutes or people who are not your spouse, something similar happens. There is a union uh, of the flesh there. And so he's applying it uh, improperly but in a, because it's a similarity between these two things but he who joined uh, but he who is joined to the lord becomes one spirit with him and so this is the counter statement in a similar way so marriage between a man and a woman is a picture what's it a picture of Yeah, uh, of Christ's marital relation with his church and that's why so often in the old testament how is idolatry described Infidelity, adultery is so often how it's described. And so there is the similarity. Marriage is a picture of Christ's union with his church. And so when we are joined to the Lord, in a similar way in which we are joined with our spouse, we are united, not bodily, but Paul says here, spiritually. So you have spiritual union. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you, you have spiritual union with him. And that is one major reason why you are not to engage in sexual immorality or any other sin for that matter is because you're presently united with Christ. Every, and then the implication, the, the imperative really in verse 18. So what is, since we, we know that the body will be raised and we know that even presently it's spiritually united with Christ, what then are we to do concerning temptation to sexual immorality or any other sin for that matter? Was that Sharon? I used to say, like, get, run like the wind. Run like the wind. Yes. <laughs> I like that. No, it's true. We, we are to, I mean, this is, is this not the picture of repentance? That we are to, when we are encountering 
sin, temptation, whether sexual immorality or having one too many servings of Thanksgiving dinner, whatever it is, when we overindulge, well, we are to see the temptation and we are to repent. We are to turn away from it and we are to, to flee to Christ. We aren't to look over there and be like, eh, maybe a dabble just, just a little bit. I'll play around with sin a little bit and then maybe, maybe then I'll, I'll start kind of looking that way. No, it is a flee. Do we realize how serious sin is, how dangerous it is? There's a reason why Paul doesn't say, walk away. He says flee, because it's a matter of life and death urgency. Because a little bit of sin leads to a little bit more sin, and a little bit more sin. And the next thing you know, you're walking in the habit of sin, and you've apostatized from Christ, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, there's something particular about sexual sin, though, and that's what Paul highlights here. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And it's not immediately clear to me what exactly he's getting at. I think the general idea is that there, there are desires which are aroused from within. And there are desires which come from without. And there's something natural about sexual desires in that they, they come from within. Uh, whereas other temptations are more external. And so the, the issue here is that when we violate God's law in this way, we're not ultimately sinning just against another person. We're sinning in our own body. And remember, who is our body united to? To Christ. And if you're married to your spouse, and you, 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 you go and you, you, you do that, and what you're doing is you're, you're injuring your, your own relationship with, with your spouse and with your God. Uh, it's a sin against your own body, which is united to others. The issue is not just that it's a sin against yourself and you suffer from it. The point is that that body is united spiritually to God, physically with your spouse. And when you sin, it's not just sinning against another person. You're not just you know, defiling them. You're defiling yourself, and you're united to your spouse and to the Lord God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? We have got another reason. That's a related reason. The body's going to be raised, and it's spiritually united with Christ, and it's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That should discourage us. One third, a third reason to discourage us from pursuing sin and sexual immorality is that we are temples of a living God. God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, and we should not uh, easily go and make him a uh, partner, so to speak, in sin. You know, I, I remember... When I was dating my wife, we went to a, a, a play, Macbeth, a great play, a very good play. And we enjoyed it so much, we decided to go to another play. And I didn't do my due diligence in checking into the content of that play. And it was very vulgar and very offensive. And I was ashamed because I had brought my sweet future wife to, 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 to see something that she should have never seen. And it grieves me. And it should grieve every single one of us whenever we engage and this sort of sin, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We bring a holy God into partnership with our own unrighteousness, and we should be ashamed of that. We should not do it. Last point. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's the, the end and 
the end of it all, isn't it? We remember that our bodies will be raised, and they're in present spiritual union with Christ, and they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we have been bought. We do not belong to ourselves, but the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed to purchase us from that slime and from that slavery, from that sewer, that gutter that we were once in. We've been brought to be Christians. We've been made saints, and it came at a cost. It was not free. And so we remember that Jesus paid the price. He has purchased us. And the implication of all this, how then should we live? Knowing the resurrection is true. Knowing the present spiritual union with Christ is true. Knowing the indwelling with the Holy Spirit is true. Knowing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shed his own blood for our sin. How then should we live? So that is therefore glorify God in your body. What is the purpose of the body? Not for sexual immorality, but for service to God and righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth, which exhorts and corrects and trains us in all righteousness. We pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts to help us to live a life worthy of the gospel in a manner pleasing to you. Having set us free from sin, Lord, would you help us to serve the living Lord Jesus Christ, body, soul, mind, heart, affections. Would you render us, uh, Lord, towards a, a full obedience Help us to serve you every day of our lives, and especially this day as we worship you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.